Welcome to Inside Scope, the American Gastroenterological Association podcast that will help you advance your patient care one half hour segment at a time. Join us to hear from the experts, learn new skills, and stay abreast of changing best practices. We'll be tackling a different topic each month, so make sure to subscribe and join us on our mission to improve digestive health for all. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Paul Feuerstadt, co-host for our series, C. difficile, Preparing the Field for Change. This series consists of six podcast episodes for all clinicians from gastroenterology, infectious disease, hospital medicine, geriatric medicine, primary care, and from academic and community-based settings. We'll explore how to take a patient-centered approach to treatment, diagnosis, explore emerging treatment options, and discuss best practices for transitions of care. In today's episode, we're going to discuss the impact of recurrent C. difficile infection on patients and their lives. We're joined by our guests, Dr. Kevin Gary, Dr. Sahil Khanna, and Melissa. My name is Dr. Paul Feuerstadt. So today, we're going to be talking about a really interesting topic, and that interesting topic is the burden of C. difficile on our patients. And anybody who's had C. difficile in the past has experienced the physical, emotional, as well as the social burden of this infection on themselves and their lives. And we're going to be focusing on that specifically today. Now, we're really bringing together an exciting group with diverse backgrounds. We have a patient who's lived through this. We have a pharmacist who deals with this all the time as an uber specialist. And then we have two clinicians who deal with recurrent C. difficile all the time. So to start off, Kevin, can you walk us through the challenge of recurrent C. difficile, the frequency that we see this? Absolutely. So C. diff, as you know, it's, it's a microbiome disease. And we have to give antibiotics to patients to cure whatever infectious disease they have. And they're good at killing the bugs that cause the infectious diseases. But then they kill our healthy microbiota as well. And that's what keeps us from getting C. diff in the first place. Now, once we get C. diff infection, we have to kill that bug. And so we most commonly give an antibiotic called vancomycin. And that vancomycin is really good at killing the bug, but it's, but it's unfortunately also good at killing your healthy microbiota. So one in five to one in four patients, 20 to 25% of the time, will actually get C. diff infection again. And it gets us into this escalator going downwards of very high rates of recurrence. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're getting together today and actually having Melissa here too to tell us like, how devastating that, that recurrence actually is. Yeah, no, and I, I completely agree. I think the really important concept here is that escalator. I like that visual that you give for it, which is we need to sort of stop that escalator, you know, from going down and we need to sort of break that cycle. And you're right. I mean, you know, 20, 25%, even some studies say 35% of patients with initial episode will recur. And then 40 to 50% after that and up to 60% thereafter as patients get caught in this cycle. Now, I think it's really important for all of us to think about there's kind of two phases to treatment of C. difficile. There's the treating the, the, the phase that causes symptoms. And then there's this kind of spore phase that causes recurrence and spread. And right now with antibiotics, we're largely treating just the symptom phase, whereas we're relying on our systems to kind of replenish our microbiome, replenish the microorganisms in our gut to give it that knockout punch of the spore phase. And sometimes that doesn't work. Actually, frequently that doesn't work. And that's where we see recurrence. Now, Sahil, can you talk to us a little bit about the burden of recurrence on the population? 
Where do we see it? What is the impact physically on our patients? Paul, we see about 450,000 primary infections in the United States every year. And with the rates of recurrence that Kevin just mentioned, anywhere between 40 and 80,000 people will at least get a first recurrence and then people will get multiply recurrent C. difficile infection. I think those are the kind of numbers we look at. People who get recurrences are the ones who have other risk factors for C. difficile that are that keep on sustaining this microbiome disruption that's out there for these patients. Age over 65, ongoing antibiotic exposure, being immunocompromised, being in a healthcare facility for long periods of time, having other health conditions like kidney disease, liver disease, heart failure. All those people are the ones who keep getting this burden of recurrences over and over again. Yeah, no, and I think that's really, really important what you bring up, which is, you know, what are the risk factors for occurrence and the demographics, the medication exposures, the environment all play a really important role. But also, you know, it's important to realize that we're going to focus on the the impact on health-related quality of life during this discussion. But there are other things that come with this. Consequences from this recurrency difficile, increased risk of sepsis, increased risk of colectomy. Studies have shown across in a demographic of people aged 18 to 64, with each recurrent episode, there's an increase in the frequency of sepsis and an increase in the need for a colectomy within 12 months. And that's in a younger population. So we can only imagine what's happening in a more senior population. So with this basic foundational knowledge in mind with regards to recurrency difficile, we're delighted to be joined by a patient who's experienced this. And Melissa, thank you so much for being here and sharing sharing your story. Can you provide us a bit of a background about your experience and your story? Sure. Thanks, Dr. Forrestad. It's a pleasure to be here. I was 37 or 38 years old, 37 when it started. I had finished back-to-back courses of azithromycin, And suddenly I was having upper symptoms, right? I had a history of a little bit of gastroparesis, but absolutely in great health. I had no, had no issues at all. So I went to my doctor. I had this trusted provider for many years and, uh, you know, I went to him and I said, you know, I'm having these upper symptoms, right? I wasn't having any lower symptoms at the time. And then, you know, so he, he said, oh, you know, just, just, it's probably stress. It's probably your gastroparesis acting up. So this went on for about six months of just getting worse and worse and worse. And the behavioral repercussions were depression, anxiety, fear. I mean, all I knew was that I wasn't feeling any better and no one was listening to me. So finally, and I actually do remember on one of my initial meetings with him, I said, could this be C. diff? I don't know much about it, but my dad had it and my friend had it. And, you know, I'm just thinking, because I had the back-to-back azithromycin, maybe maybe this would be that. And he said, no, 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 you're not sick enough. You're not sick enough. I said, oh, okay. So I actually remember telling him, I, I'm concerned it might be C. diff. So, but that's all I knew. So then finally, I called him up in March. This was 2018. And I said, hey you need to send in more testing because this is just not okay. This is not acceptable. I am not getting any better. I'm losing weight. I'm depressed. I feel sick all the time. I was on PPIs that were causing migraines, all of this upper issue. And the only reason I feel he took me seriously was because I suggested I was having some lower symptoms. Oh, I'm getting bloated. So I remember I I dropped off those samples at the lab. And then the next night around 9.45, I got a call. He said, you're C. diff positive for toxin B. 
I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, oh, we'll just give you some vancomycin and, and you should be better in a couple of weeks and we're going to give it to you. And then you have to go off of it every other day. And then there's all of this thing. So I said, all right, well, at least you can cure it with antibiotics. Well, I, <laughs> well, wasn't that funny because I, I would say this went on from March until October, until I saw Dr. Feuerstadt and it was vancomycin, deficit, take the deficit and in this way, and then take six weeks of vancomycin. I, mean, I don't know how I managed to, to keep up with it all. And at the same time too, I mean, I felt confident in my provider because I trusted him. We had a, a very close relationship for many years. So finally, I was able to go into Dr. Feuerstadt's office and he said, yeah, we're going to we're going to handle this for you because I really I did not know it was wrong. All I knew was that I was extremely thin, I was depressed, I was anxious, I was feeling sick all the time. And if I ever stopped the vancomycin, it would come back again whether it be 2 weeks and the next time it was 6 weeks and then it was 8 weeks. It was just to the point where I was I felt like I was just chasing this, chasing this and I will say that in July, June or July of that year in the middle of all this I went to my doctor and said, can we just talk about a fecal transplant? Because I did a Google about this and maybe this is something, right? So at the time, there weren't a ton of resources available. And also too, the things that I did read on these general websites were just a lot worse than I was presenting. So, I mean, that's my story, at least about patient advocacy. There was a lot of stress trying to manage something that you don't know much about. I feel like it's very uncomfortable to approach a practitioner when you think they're wrong or they're missing something. I think that there's definitely some kind of, I think, a societal respect you have for practitioners, right? You don't want to tell them. Some practitioners, I can understand, have patients coming in saying, I have this when they really don't because we have access to a lot of information. All of it may not be accurate. I would say from a psychological perspective, I would say there were high depression and anxiety not being listened to. And I also will say that, I mean, it's it could be some speculation here, but I feel like if you're a female presenting with stomach symptoms, it's very easy to say, oh, you're stressed out. Well, of course I'm stressed out. I don't feel good. So I feel like that may have played a part in it as well. And I would also say the after I had my treatment with Dr. Feuerstadt, you carry this fear with you of going into a hospital, being exposed again, going through that again, having confidence in your practitioners and your own body after going through something like this. And and truly, like <laughs> I didn't realize how dangerous this illness is. You know, you think as a patient you can take an antibiotic and it goes away, but that's not always the case with this. To think that I was carrying this risk for so many months, just going overlooked. I mean, I'm talking, it was 13 months before I landed in the right treatment. Wow. Melissa, thank you so much for sharing that really emotional story. I think it really kind of hits home with all of us from multiple angles, but also, you know, from the patient standpoint, you're, you're not alone. And a lot of patients, unfortunately, experience this. One question for you is, how do you think the healthcare system might improve to help a broader array of patients from an emotional standpoint. What do you think would be a way that the healthcare system might be able to improve in this matter with regards to C. difficile? That's a very multi-pronged question. I would think, first of all, acknowledging the role of behavioral health in everyday practice. I feel like it's easy to, I mean, listen, I'm not a practitioner, right? I can't imagine what practitioners deal with every single day. So I can't say that, but I will just say acknowledge behavioral health 
as a medical condition. And I think that's a really important thing. And I also think that building a relationship with a patient, I don't know if it's an art or science or both. I mean, I I really don't know. And I really can't advise on what that looks like. But I can tell you as a patient that being open-minded to the possibilities of thinking outside the box. You know, at the beginning of this podcast, you know, there was a list of risk factors, 65 and up, immunocompromised in a facility. I'm out in the community, right? 37-year-old female who's clearly anxious because I was very sick. So falling outside that demographic, I would just encourage outside the box thinking. It's really not a big deal to order a test. I mean, really, like from my experience, if you're ordering like a GI test, right? Just check another box. Why not? Go ahead and just do it because the patient doesn't know enough to ask. And sometimes we count, we rely on our practitioners for a lot, right? And I think that when we set up an appointment, you expect that you're going to be put in the right direction right away. And I don't know if that's fair for a patient to expect. I don't know if the art of medicine allows for that space, but I do think that, you know, thinking about patients and listening to them. Like if, you know, if I said to my doctor, Hey, I was just back to back azithromycin in eight weeks. And he would have said, huh, you know what? Wouldn't hurt to just test for it. I mean, what's the, what's the problem? But I wasn't sick enough and I wasn't clinically, you know, in that situation, it's like, well, maybe it doesn't have to be clinical. Maybe just azithromycin is enough. Right. Right. So, and I would also say that, and this might be something that is another conversation here, but I also think being being able to work with office staff, the frontline people, the people who answer the phones, the medical assistants, I, I would say having them listen to what the patient said, whether that's training, maybe there is ongoing training for this, but sometimes you, the medical assistant asks how you're doing. Sometimes a patient may reveal something that either gets overlooked when the doctor walks in the room. That might be another way to do it, but I would say... Allowing that patient to feel supported somehow during this, during a C. diff journey or otherwise. Well, thank you. And I think you bring up so many really important and relevant points. What's nice about this this interaction in this podcast is that we have a couple of people who are trying to focus on this through a research sense so that we can gain greater insights into exactly what you're saying on a broader population level. And we've integrated that into clinical trials and into other related studies looking at the physical and the emotional and the adaptational and the relational and the productivity impact, the impact on people's ability to to earn a living. Now, Kevin, Dr. Gary, has done a lot of research in this realm, and he has created something called the CDF32. So, Kevin, can you walk us through what the CDF32 is and what its goals are? Absolutely. And Melissa, thanks for sharing your story. There's, a, there's an awful lot to unpack there. So it, when, when you think of health-related quality of life, we think of stuff like diabetes or cancer or chronic diseases. And you can certainly see quality of life going down over time as kind of chronic diseases progress. And then when you think of acute infectious diseases like the flu or a very bad cold, you know you feel very bad for a certain period of time and then you generally get all better. And Melissa, your story perfectly exemplifies why C. diff is more of a chronic disease than an acute disease. The the symptoms last and persist, and it affects a lot more than just the symptoms. It affects your entire quality of life. So I was running some clinical trials where we were doing some outpatient follow-up and actually going into patient rooms 
their homes, essentially. And it was exactly as you described. You'd walk into a room and the person is almost always in their own bedroom by themselves, secluded with a private bathroom. It doesn't smell good. Windows are closed. Blinds are drawn. You could immediately tell there's a quality of life problem. Most of the time, depression and a lot of anxiety, as you describe, Melissa. So that really started me off and saying, well, we don't have any sort of measure to quantify this quality of life. And so with that came a lot of one-on-one discussions with C. diff survivors, experts in the field, to come up with, as you might guess, 32 specific questions that form the basis for how a person's quality of life is when they have C. diff, and specifically focusing on whether or not they have recurrent C. diff or not. And exactly as Melissa described, it gets worse over time. As the disease progresses, your quality of life goes down. And that, Paul, is where the C. diff 32 came from. That's fabulous. Thank you for that insight, Kevin. And yeah, I mean, and this is something that we've now validated across multiple clinical trials as a tool for us to gain insights, which is incredibly exciting from my standpoint, because I think this is all incredibly important, incredibly relevant, because we don't just treat an infection, we treat a person. And this really speaks to that. And I appreciate, Kevin, thank you for having that idea and for putting this together and to organizing it and bringing it forward over the last few years. Um, I think it's been about six years now that it's really kind of grown and become the standard. And it's really greatly appreciated. Now, Melissa, you've heard what Kevin said, and we now have a validated questionnaire. What do you think about that? What do you, how does that make you feel? Do you think it's something that's going to be helpful? What are your thoughts? I would have given anything (laughs) to have that level of compassion and measure and action during the time I was sick. I think it's spot on. I think that it is something that has been overlooked until now. And I'm really encouraged to hear that this awareness has been articulated and captured in in a measured and articulated way. I mean, he said, he said, you know, you go to someone's house and the blinds are drawn and they're isolated and and all of these things. And, And it made me think of the isolation I had from my friends and family because I just didn't feel well. So I'd say it causes that withdrawal because it's alienated. I also think that going through months and months and months of this treatment, you don't know how you'll feel from day to day. And I think that's intrinsically prohibitive not only for work, you know, for your livelihood, but also too for socializing. And I think that, you know, we've learned over the past couple of years, the importance of interaction and the repercussions of social isolation. So during a time when social isolation wasn't, I'll just use the word mainstream as it has been the past couple of years, it felt particularly more challenging. And I also will say that being somebody who was 37 at the time, going through an illness like this, is even more isolating. Because generally that demographic doesn't experience it or, and it's funny because I actually found people who were in the, what you had described as a risk factor group were a lot more compassionate toward younger people being ill. Maybe it's life experience. Maybe it's just because they've gone through things themselves at different ages. I think that it is a very overlooked aspect. And I will say that took me, as I said earlier, a very long time to trust the medical system and to also work on my own depression and anxiety that came out of it, not only restoring physical health as well. I mean, I was extremely thin and I wasn't healthy physically. So it was a lot of recovery 
that I feel could be overlooked. You know, I didn't experience that with Dr. Feuerstadt. He stayed very close. We talked very often. I had regular appointments. My progress was measured. And I will say he would check in and, and make sure that my mental health aspects, are you going out and doing things? How are you, know, are you resuming some of your activities? So I felt that I was very fortunate to have experienced that whole person health that's being discussed here. Well, I appreciate that. And I, I think that that's really important. That's kind of how all of us should practice, which is looking, as I said, at the individual, not just the infection or not just the not just the disease state. And really with this kind of a question here, are, you know, the goals are really twofold. One is to validate uh, the the realities that most of us already know who specialize within this, but also to promote it and to educate the broader populations about this. And one of the tools that we that these have been used within are the clinical trials considering live biotherapeutic products. Now, Sahil, there's been recent data that has looked at the CDF32 impact for patients in these live biotherapeutic product trials. Can you briefly run through that for us? Well, like any other clinical trials, now we are finally getting the CDF world that we need to look at patient reported outcomes. And thanks to Kevin's work, this is the first patient reported outcome, very well done, very well validated. But also this addresses the concerns that patients like Melissa have had over the years, breaking that stereotype, trying to really get into how this debilitating infection uh, affects our patients. Now, some of you may know there are more than one, actually total of four live biotherapeutics that are being studied in clinical development for C. difficile infection. Two of them have completed phase three clinical trials that have been published, and two of them have finished phase two and should be in phase three clinical trials now. But all of them at different stages of their clinical development have measured quality of life. And a lot of them have measured CDF32 related quality of life. And Paul, you've published and presented a lot of that data also. What we're seeing as a general theme is that patients who have recurrent C. difficile infection end up having lower quality of life scores in several domains, physical, psychological, social, and others. And if you restore the microbiome, meaning you give them a live biotherapeutic product get their good bacteria back, have them become diarrhea-free and resolve their CDF cell infection. A lot of their domains of quality of life as measured in the CDF32 tend to improve after a microbiome-based therapeutic. Thank you. Yes. And I, I think that really when we think about this, it's, it's shutting down the overall elements of the cycle of recurrence and impacting in a positive way the relief that patients feel, maybe shutting down the infection earlier in the process at, at first recurrence or second recurrence. Um, but also, interestingly enough, these live biotherapeutic products have had fairly fascinating data showing that even when patients receive it, but they recur, their health-related quality of life goes up. And that's something that's really fascinating and something that we need to look into further in terms of the shifts in the microbiota that we see despite the patients recurring. The live biotherapeutic products are clearly pointing the microbiota in the right direction, and that's having some sort of effect because these are blinded trials. So this has been a wonderful, wonderful program. We've had excellent dialogue. We've had different spins and different angles talking about health-related quality of life, the impact of recurrence uh, and recurrency difficile on patients and their lives, the social impact, the physical impact, the psychological impact. What I'm now going to do is just ask briefly, in a minute or a minute and a half, we're going to go around and just 
give a parting shot, a last statement. So Melissa, can you provide a last statement? I'd say that I'm really encouraged to have these 32 aspects of C. diff articulated and practiced and integrated with clinical trials. I'd say it's an important aspect to have relationships with your patients and to view them as individuals instead of just the disease. And I encourage outside the box thinking and asking the right questions that may not be conventional. If there's somebody with that's outside of the typical demographic presenting, I would encourage you to explore all possibilities because you never quite know where it could land. Excellent. Thank you. And I appreciate that. Kevin, what are your thoughts? Well, I will echo Melissa's thoughts and uh, thank her again for presenting her story. I think uh, numbers going up and numbers going down are important in terms of quality of life differences. But when you hear the story behind those numbers, that's what it really rams home. I think the next step is to be able to incorporate these patient-reported outcomes, this, this patient perspective, into how we choose our therapies, how we put our therapies on the formulary, and then how we do research to make sure that that patient voice is always heard in all of our treatment decisions. Excellent. Greatly appreciated. And Sahil? I'd like to hear more from patients like Melissa, their individual stories. Completely agree. We need to break the stereotypes. We've done a little bit of work showing that, yes, CDFCL can affect younger people, but nobody would ever think they can affect younger people with that bad of a quality of life. I think the gender stereotypes out there, Melissa, it is in gastroenterology. We do know there are more women than men who get CDFCL infections. So we really need to break that gender stereotype of the young woman who presents to the GI office with GI symptoms. And we sometimes think it's functional GI. We need to break those stereotypes. I'm in with you for that 100%. I completely agree with everything that was said. I, I think we're just at a, such an exciting point right now. We're at a pivot point. We have new therapies that are going to become available to broader patients. We have insights that those therapeutics are going to hopefully improve quality of life, but we're also hopefully going to be able to empower both patients and providers. Patients hopefully will be able to be empowered to say, hey, you know what? As Melissa was asking for, I need this test. Now it's, if the test was done, I need this treatment. And then the providers hopefully will say, look, there's FDA approved treatments. This is how we should go about it. Let me learn about it if I don't know. But you know what? With that FDA stamp, we now have consistent safety and efficacy through clinical trials. And that really validates what is most important for our patients, which is being safe and effective with the therapeutics. So I want to thank everybody for tuning into this episode in our series on C. difficile, Preparing the Field for Change, which was supported by educational grants from Immune Therapeutics, Serious Therapeutics, and Faring Pharmaceuticals. I want to make a special thanks to today's guests, including Melissa, Dr. Sahil Khanna, and Dr. Kevin Gary. For additional resources on C. difficile, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org. Thanks for listening to Inside Scope, an official AGA podcast. Make sure to subscribe to be notified as we roll out new episodes. For more GI education, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org.